Welcome to another episode of Bullshit Bronchitis. We watch the Aussie films, so you don't have to. Yep. Join Bill and I as we venture into the very heart of darkness. That is the Australian film industry. Welcome, Bill. Hello. Ah, that took a few attempts at getting that one, that one right. I don't know why, but so a quick tidy up from last episode, two things I kept saying, and I, I was praising him the whole episode, but I kept saying Adam Akarpal when it is actually Adam Akarpal. Hmm. For some re- for some reason, I don't know, I kept fucking up where the R was, but it's Akarpal, not Akarpal. Anyway, so it turns out in 2015 at Fifth Actor Awards, they gave him the Brian Kennedy Award, which is like some sort of, I guess, honorary award. You know, like at universities, you get an honorary doctorate, (laughs) which means, oh, hey, you're not like, we don't think you're good enough to win in the actual individual categories, but we'll just create one for you because we feel real bad. And we gave your previous awards to the wrong people. So uh Pretty much when he did some work overseas, like True Detective and Top of the Lake, they're like, oh, shit, he's actually a really good DP. So let's give him this, a you know, honorary award in uh, retrospect. So, so why uh, didn't they recognise that in the first place, though, with Animal Kingdom and Snowtown? That's the big question. Because they're just shit. Brian Brown! Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only way they're I just shit. Brian Browns! Yeah, don't worry, we'll put in a Brian Brown there. But yeah, I, like I said, there's I don't know what it is, if it's political or whatnot but it's just like if you're not rewarding good quality work then people just tune out people can see through the bullshit anyway he got an honorary award so i guess good on him but it would have been nice to actually have won in his you know elected categories uh anyway so that's the first bit of tidy up the second tidy up and that's the last one is old mate daniel henshaw who played john bunting he actually lived we should have brought this up in the podcast we fucking spoke long enough but he actually lived in elizabeth and salisbury north for about three months leading up to the production of snowtown yeah right eh? did you read that anywhere no i didn't i didn't come across that at all was that purely because he was in the role and he was going method or Oh, he must have been going method. Like, it's pretty rare that you you dedicate three months of your life to that pre-production phase as an actor. It might have just um, been incidental, you know. Might have had friends <laughs> or family there. Didn't say. From the interview that I saw, didn't say. But he was hanging around the pubs and he was hanging around the same sort of streets that uh, Bunting was, you know, uh, you know, used to visit. But it'd be quite hanging interesting. Around the same go- schools. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if um, he was wearing the same jeans and sneakers and top and because he was he was putting weight on he put on like quite a few kilos on for the role so everybody would be like fuck is john back is he out (laughs) (laughs) so i wonder if he went that method in elizabeth that would have been great Mm. all right so that ends our first little section tidy up from last step let's introduce the film so today it's sleeping beauty good night It was written and directed by Australian novelist Julia Lee. It stars Emily Browning as Lucy in the lead role, with Rachel Blake in a supporting capacity. The film was shot at Fox Studios in Sydney and on location. So the plot of this film is the film follows the day-to-day activities of a young woman named Lucy. She is an undergraduate student who works many menial jobs. She's disinterested and self-destructive. 
One day she comes across a peculiar job opportunity where she's paid quite handsomely to become a sleeping beauty. In doing so, she consents to being drugged and fondled by older men unknown to her. And there are a lot of time they can do anything but penetration. This film was released 10 years ago. And here we are now. Mm. Yes, we are. Had you seen the film before? Unfortunately, I have, yes. <laughs> so I, would, I just... I know we're going to go into the gist and the ratings later on, but you did use unfortunately there. Is that a genuine unfortunately? It is. It's a genuine unfortunately. Man, I did I, not like this film. I'm going to. You didn't like it? No, I hated it. <laughs> I fucking hated it, man. Don't, don't sugarcoat it. Tell me how you actually <laughs> feel about it. No, I did. Like, I, I went in completely blind. Like I knew there was a film called Sleeping Beauty with Emily Browning. So, so, so you had no, you had no setup for this, no context, no context whatsoever. Oh, All I knew Imagine. is that she was, you know, naked for a decent part of the film. But that was it. That was everything I knew. I, I didn't even like, not even the one sentence blurb on the back of a DVD cover. I didn't have that much context. Mm. I went in completely blind. And I went. What, from, a, what an experience! What an experience! Because, like, mate, to go into this film completely blind—that would be—I don't know. I, I wish I had that, but obviously I didn't. But yeah, mm. yeah, I went in completely blind. I went from just, just confused to completely flabbergasted. And by the time the film ended, I couldn't believe that was it. You know, like, mm. yeah, it was just a, a quagmire. Did uh, you did you beg for death? I beg for some people's <laughs> deaths. Yeah. The, um, there was a TV show on HBO called Bored to Death, and that would be a very apt uh, title for this film, I reckon. Because to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty good with films. There's very few films I reckon I can count on my one hand where I haven't made it through the whole film. And on my other hand, like there's very few films that I would actually classify as boring. Like even some of the... like. The general public, a lot of the films that I like, they would consider that quite meandering, slow, boring, bland, whatever, even though I'd find them quite interesting and exciting because it's a bit more about the technique or the dialogue or the performances. But with this movie, there's no other way to describe it but boring. Mm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> I just, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around the what direction they were taking. You know, I didn't understand it, how it was so plain. You know, like mm. it's such, it's such like the content had every reason to be exciting and, and controversial, but it just, mm. it was very plain Jane, you know, like it was very, it was so clinical and slow and quiet and, you know, I just. Pain, painfully understated. Yeah. Yeah. It was not in, enjoyable. In, in every. In every aspect, there's no heightened anything. There's no heightened stakes. The And the weirdest thing is too, with this film, and we'll have to do a whole subject on a bit later on in the podcast, is that there's just no character progression. Mm. And I've never, I've never seen that for a protagonist that there's actual, there's actually no arc or character momentum or progress. I've, I've never seen that before. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. Well, that, that's the thing because you, you come into this film and like you, you're thrown into a point in time where you, you don't know what's going on. You don't know who's who. You don't know what the character's motivations are. And oh, then, fuck. Wait, hold on a second. Oh, wait. No, no. Are you recording? Because I don't think I'm recording. I've been recording, yeah. 
okay good because i was gonna say no i hate this movie don't make me fucking i don't want to re-record it okay so you just okay after this you just send it to me yeah via via we transfer or something okay yeah. sorry Continue. yeah you're thrown into the start of this movie at a point in time where you've got no context you you meet this character lucy this uni student whatever but you, you don't know what her motivations are. You don't know what drives her to do what she does. And to be honest, what she does is pretty fucking confusing. And then you go through an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes of runtime of all these significant events. And you still don't, you're not any better off than the start. You know, like you still don't know what drives her. You still don't know the reason she does what she does, the way she reacts, how she reacts, you know. You're right. There's there's just no character progression whatsoever, and I can't fathom it getting to the point where it is. You know, like how do you make a film where you you don't know the people in it? I don't know. Mm. Especially when you spent what do you call it a hundred minutes with them. You spent a hundred minutes with Lucy, and you don't know her any better than the opening scene. Mm. She yeah. just remains a flat two-dimensional character, which, well, by the way, I, I've never seen in a movie before where your main character, like even Transformers, the main character has like an arc. Hmm. <laughs> has more, has more, Shia LaBeouf's character has more depth. Like what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. And uh, I've seen other, other, other films or other media where the characters are, you know, not boring. Boring is the wrong word, but they are um, under so understated like her, but they also just don't go out and do fucking weird shit like she does, you know, like mm. the way she acts, the way she is almost anarchistic or hedonistic in the way she acts, you know, like she goes out to bars, like she's presumably late teens, early twenties. She goes out to bars mm. rooting guys, middle-aged guys based on the flip of a coin or, you know, she answers I'm going to get to this point later, but she answers an ad in a university paper for escorting to super exclusive, like secret society, rich perverts. I don't know why that would be advertised in a fucking uni paper, but anyway. So um, was it definitely a uni paper? Yeah, it was because oh, there was a point you'd at be which you'd be crucified now for that, that, that advert. Oh, fuck yeah. And like, I think at the start, it sort of reminds me of Bachman. Brian Brown answered a flyer for a job and she almost ended up working at Bikini Girls Massage. But anyway, mm. she picked up, <laughs> you see her go into the lecture theatre and she grabs a uni like pamphlet or newspaper on the way in. And then when she's on the phone call, she's like, oh yeah, I'm just answering an ad from the uni newspaper. Oh yes, um, a slim, uh, pert, uh, what do you want me to wear? You know, like what kind of job do you think you're applying for? But, mm. Anyway. By the way, I should have looked that up, pert. I've mm. never heard of the word pert before. Did you look that up or oh, did really? you already know that? No, I know pert, yeah. What does pert mean then, Mr. Thesaurus? Pert, if you were talking in the context of breasts, means they're not drooping. They haven't aged much, you know, pointing straight forward. So, so, so you're talking about perky then? Is that is pert word and perky, perky? Are, are not exactly synonymous, but they're used in tandem quite a lot, pert and perky. But... Mm. Want to get through this? Let's go. Like I said, I always try to do a little light structure, but you'll like this one. It's very on point. So I'm going to read out 
two lists for you. And on these lists is a series of adjectives used to describe the film. One list is from the critics and the other is from the general audience going members of the public. And so I'll read you the first list and you have to guess critics or audience. Mm-hmm. And then we'll do the second list, all right? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say it's going to be pretty difficult. It's going to be very <laughs> difficult. Okay, so let's do the first one. Pretentious, boring, slow, dull, bland. The second list, stunning, unafraid, extraordinary, splendid. Which one was the audience list and which one was the critics list? Well, the first was definitely the audience because... <laughs> Anyone who's experienced that film, they're the words that go through their heads. Mm. Yeah, that was a pretty, that, that really shows a, a massive, well, it's, it's a, that's the massive divide between critics and audiences in general. However, what, from what I read about this film, the critics were sort of equally divided too. Mm. I think they were sort of more divided about the, I'll call it the pretentiousness of the film, whether it's like a feminist message or an anti-feminist message and they all get lost in their own, I don't know theory and you know all that mm. sort of jazz uh, so they're more f- debating about that aspect as opposed to whether or not the film is actually enjoyable which it clearly isn't <laughs> but yeah it was quite interesting like that's a pretty funny list really that shows the the general divide between critics and the audience mm. but it was funny actually there's just this one review where it just says and this is in broken English I wrote this verbatim it just says this is the review for the film this guy wrote one sentence Emily Browning Will go out with me. <laughs> that's what he wrote. That's what he wrote for the review. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, what a what a bizarre. I don't know. I, don't, I want to say this is another cactus, but uh, at well, least ca- ca- cactus had some characterization. At least they. At yeah. least you could clearly define the two male leads in that film and their motives or whatever but it's like you know the one thing that's unique about this story right the only thing I'll say positively about the character of Lucy is that I can't recall a time where I've seen a female character who is so disinterested so apathetic those are not the points really that I'm interested in (laughs) but it's really the self-destructive nature of Lucy I, I've seen a lot of films, but I cannot recall a female character being so self-destructive with really no reason to be so. Or if there is a reason, it's very vague, whether mm-hmm. it's her mum who's, you know, an alcoholic or the dad's not even mentioned. So maybe there was some sort of family trauma. But how self-destructive she is actually piqued my interest. I actually thought this is actually a really interesting concept that went nowhere because the stakes were never raised with her self-destructive tendencies. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. You say that the self-destructive tendencies, you know, she's destroying her personal relationships. She's destroying her professional relationships. Everything she establishes, she self-sabotages, but it doesn't explore why. And that's why you're here, you know, like this kind of film would be the perfect um, platform to, you know, to go into people's motivations or how they got to where they are and why they're doing what they're doing. But it just doesn't show that. It just gives you a potentially interesting character, somehow makes her as uninteresting as possible, throws a bunch of random events at her and then finishes. That's it. Mm. 
And, and I think like we won't deviate too much, but you know, like I said to you, a lot of Australian films, there's never a clear goal mm. about like where it's heading. It's like, you know, what you said, like an experience or what did you call it? Experiential? Experiential. Experiential yeah. film. I don't know. Is that the word? I don't know. We'll, it's the we'll word I use, out. but then I don't know if it is a word. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a word either. Fuck, yeah. we'll cut this out. But anyway, so most Australian films, like whether they're drama, well, most, most of the genres really don't have a clear goal in mind. So that's why it just seems like it just keeps limping on. You're just like, where's this going? Where's this going? Where's this going? And then it just ends and you're like, oh, okay, cool. All right, let's go home now. Mm. Like even people don't realize for even dramas. So Silver Linings Playbook is a good example. Well, A, it's a good example of a good film, but it's a good example of a drama that actually has a goal. The goal of the drama, of that drama is Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence teaming up to dance together at this random dance competition, right? But by the time you get to the end of the film, the dance competition is not really what's important. It's how they grew you know, became close and how they grew together and how he became less dependent and less reliant on his wife and he was able to move on. Obviously, that's the deeper context of the film. But the clear physical goal is like, you know, let's dance together and try and win this competition. As, as outlandish as that sounds, because like both of them aren't of sound mind. So that's why it makes sense in the context of that film. But like with, you know, with this film, there was never a clear goal. It was never like, oh, Lucy wanted to finish uni or Lucy wanted to become a millionaire or insta famous or you know there was no clear goal even though yeah. you don't have to reach your goal but there's just no direction for 100 minutes no direction and one of the scenes that you can tell straight away that the pacing of the film is going to be really slow so you, you get some sense that okay there might be somewhere that we're going it might take a while to get there but we're still going you know and it paints very early on it paints the idea that she's struggling for money she's working several menial jobs she's attending uni so like you said you think oh she's struggling for money um she's struggling to pay her rent but she's going to uni so she might be driven to success in some way or another does she want the education does she want the money does she want both so then Mm. she she comes across this ad and she's going to get 250 bucks cash an hour to do this lingerie waitressing with chance of promotion which she comes into later but anyway First gig she gets, you know, portrayed as this this virginal um, symbol of purity in in this mm. waitressing scene, whatever else. It's quite a confronting situation she's put in. Like it's just bizarre, pretty much, and confronting. Like she gets put into a situation where she's greeted at the door by a woman wearing next to nothing. Like you can only call it lingerie in loosest sense. Mm. gets told to go put her makeup on and make sure her lipstick matches her labia and then serves champagne and and brandy to old men anyway beside that that is a means to an end the end being the pay packet at the end of it 250 bucks an hour you fucking beauty she gets home opens a pay packet lights a joint and then starts burning the money then what was the point of what you've done what was the point of that entire endeavor you know like that is that is pure nihilism, you know. That's any like you thought you were meandering on a path to some end, and then she burns the money, and you're like, "Well, there goes that." Then what's her goal? I have no idea. See, that sort of stuff is fine. However, there's no payoff. Mm. Like you know what you're saying. I, I had no issue with her burning the money, but then you know another ten minutes goes by, 
she keeps sort of working, doesn't save. The only thing she does, she upgrades to the unit, like the mm. high-end unit, which is the only thing, luxury item she spends on herself. But even still, like I said, she's got these self-destructive tendencies because she's got all this money. And then her housemates are like, you don't pay the rent, fuck off. You got two weeks. Fun so, fact, I did read this. I didn't glean it from the film. But her housemates ooh. are not just housemates. Apparently, the that's her sister and her sister's boyfriend. Then well, how did you find that out? I read it on online. But apparently, I reckon yeah. someone someone made that up. That is so unclear. Mm, like, I'm not sure. and, and also, and like, I reckon somebody's just said that because, to be honest, I would argue strongly against that, unless Julia Lee is that terrible of a writer. Which is like, let's go to Julia Lee for a second. So she's famous for being a novelist, right? That, that's her actual profession. She's a professional writer. Have I read any of her books? No, but she's written about two or three books. Am I How, going to? No. No. After this experience? Definitely not. But the thing is, it's interesting. Imagine being, and I read this SBS review, imagine being like your profession is a, a writer and then everybody says about this film that the weakest thing is the script. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently it said, um, I read somewhere that she at first wrote the screenplay, not intending to direct it herself. But lo and behold, she did. But Vanity. apparently the screenplay was Vanity. on, on the, um, the blacklist in 2008 or something like that. Yeah, I did read that, but I don't know who would have thought that. But <laughs> there must be a lot of a lot of screenplays on that list, I'd say. But yeah, it'd be pretty interesting. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, this, I'm a really good writer. I make a movie. What's the weakest point? Oh, the writing. You'd be like, oh... Fuck, I'm shit, aren't I? Um, well, cool. Here's another funny thing about Julia Lee, and I don't know if you want to point this towards a character or a skill or what was that word you used before? Uh, pretentiousness. But yeah. I came across, I'm just looking for it now. So there was a fellow named Thomas Caldwell. He wrote, he runs a film review blog and he wrote a review. Some people agreed, some people didn't, but he actually replies to some of the replies in the comment threads mm. um and what have we got here one guy basically jerked him off and said i agree with everything you said my mate and i saw the film then we had to go to the pub and discuss it afterwards and your review could have taken been taken from our conversation verbatim yeah <laughs> whatever uh anyway thomas caldwell's reply to that says oh that's really interesting and it, it is that kind of film i don't think there are there's any right or wrong way to interpret it either. I got to meet Julia Lee and she was adamant about not explaining the film or revealing what any of it meant to her since she wants audiences to take away their own thoughts and ideas. What a fucking cop-out. What a cop-out. I don't know what it means, so I'm not going to tell you what it means and I'm going to say that you BYO meaning. Like, there's no fucking hidden meaning in this. It's just mm. meandering nonsense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was actually really hard to find interviews with Julia Lee. And I found from watching the interviews, I found she was quite, um, she deflected a lot of comments. Mm. There was a, another chick who in a review said, Lee does straddle the line between being about something and appearing to be about nothing at all. You know, the movie trades in ambiguity. But I don't think like ambiguity and having to to clutch at straws to find a meeting that is not a shtick that is not a, a virtue of a film you know like 
I'm not a fan. No. Well, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm in two minds about it. The, the first thing is really that I don't care that she doesn't explicitly say what the film's about. Um, you know, I, I find, because I, I don't I can understand like directors not wanting to say that and that's completely fine. Yeah. However, she's just, she's just made a painfully bland film that's very understated, that's got no rise and fall. I actually don't even think there's like a three act structure to this film i think it's literally i think a two act structure really it's just like this is this is lucy she's in a every day-to-day activities oh she stumbles across this job going to act two the sleeping beauty bit but i actually don't think there's a third act because the tension never rises it just stays at that same even tempo which is Mm. blandness Mm -hmm. and it just goes right to the end i actually don't think this story has a three act structure i think it's literally one and a half maybe two at best but yeah what a weird I think this, I don't want to say this film was the epitome of the noughties and 2010s of just pretentious Australian filmmaking, mm. but uh, films like this truly and utterly alienated Australians from their own cinema. Mm. Because like when people say to me, oh, Australian films are shit because they've been exposed to something like this. And I'm not saying that every movie has to cater to your average Joe Blow, meat pie eating Collingwood supporter, because I have no intention to make films like that. Yeah. <laughs> However, this this was the only thing that was being made in the Australian film industry for such a long time. And they're literally making these films for their seven friends. Yeah. And well, it's, it's funny you should say that. I'll read two more reviews or comments. To yeah, we don't we don't need out. reviews. We, we can just dissect this bad boy by ourselves. We don't need reviews, mate. It's it punctuates our points, right? So yeah, I know we're very we're very bad at that. <laughs> <laughs> One was from a Reddit thread from uh, you know a self dubbed cinephile, basically saying I've watched this film four times, not because I've enjoyed it, but because I'm trying to figure out what's why I don't enjoy it. Because it has all the ingredients to be good, but he just can't get there. Anyway, he said Mm. he's read several defences of the films, but he disagrees with most of what they say. I don't think there's anything to this film. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't have anything to add. It simply wants you to buy that it's very deep and that you just don't understand. You know, that's the pretentiousness that comes through. It's like Mm. it has all the airs of poignancy, but it doesn't actually get there. Yeah, it's very, I'd say it's very shallow and artificial, this film. And, you know, defenders of this film might say, oh, there's all this subtext. I'm like, mate, there's no subtext. It's so, it's gone to the point where it's so vague throughout the whole 100 minute runtime that it literally has nothing to say. Yeah. You're just, you're just seeing things happen with no unique perspective or point of view or character development or realizations. It's so vague that it has nothing to say. That's, that's Mm -hmm. how it summarizes this film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's complete. If there was a point, it's lost. But it's funny you mentioned about people having a disdain for the Australian film industry based on seeing something like this. Mm. I did see one funny comment from a fellow. He said, "If you make this sort of thing with the money from other people's taxes, you shouldn't be surprised when there's pressure on governments to reduce the amount spent on the arts. This sort of self-indulgence should be done in private and paid for by the individuals concerned." <laughs> Uh, that's great. I love that yeah. comment. So good. Out of curiosity, well, this is going to be a little conversation before we get to the big conversation. So there's little old, I'll use myself as the example, Marcus, and I've written this like script, which I think is wonderful. 
It's called Sleeping Beauty. It's about a girl called Lucy, who's an undergraduate and she does her little menial jobs. And she answers a job in a newspaper that says, hey, I want to, uh, well, initially she doesn't know she's going to get drugged, but she, she, you know, she gets exposed to the world through the lingerie party. And she's like, hey, there's nothing weird about women on their knees showing their genitalia to random strangers. That's okay. Trust I'm into like this. fucking turkeys. Yeah, it was a weird, weird get up, but we don't need to get into that. Anyway, so she's like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I'm getting paid well, even though money has no value to me anyway. So anyway, does make sense, oxymoron. Anyway, so she gets given the opportunity to, uh, she consents to being drugged and she will lie in a bed for a few hours and she'll have no recollection of the events. All she knows is she won't be vaginally penetrated. And I produce a script to Screen Australia. And do you think Screen Australia would let a heterosexual male fund fund this project? Ba-bow. Nope. There's there's no way. No matter how how like I'm just looking at it seems like a sketch comedy, really. Like there's there's me with this script called Sleeping Beauty. It's like, oh no, 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 there's all this subtext. Like Emily Browning's naked for 50% of the film, but this I, I assure you, there's plenty of subtext. It's all feminist. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> to to be honest, I don't think this film, even in 2011, like definitely now would never be greenlit from a from a male's uh script. Uh, but but like 2011, there's no way a bloke could walk into Screen Australia and just say, hey, I want to make this film on a ride and direct it. You would mm. just, I don't even know if you'd be laughed at. They'd just be like, mate, like you'd be shunned from the, the film Get the industry. Yeah, before we call the police. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you know, that's a different story in itself with identity politics. Like I said, you should be able to write and direct whatever you like, whether it's Sleeping Beauty or something, the polar opposite. But I just find it, because like you really have to look at it then, uh, whether it's the quality of script or the quality of the film, is just like, well, if half the population can't direct it or write it because you'd be seen as too sleazy or too exploitative or too A, B, C, D, E, F, G, blah, 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 then what does that really say about your script? Mm. Like, what does it say about your story? And I don't know. It's just something to think about, really. And that that whole thing was to lead into this next section, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek. But I thought, Bill, you and I are two red-blooded heterosexual males, for the most part. Yes? I know mm-hmm. that. Look at you. You're real cheeky. Look at those cheeky chops. <laughs> um, and, you know, you and I both find the the feminine form to be very appealing. And however, as much as I like to see beautiful women naked, and especially Emily Browning, did you find the level of nudity in this film to be gratuitous? That is, I want to pass that out into two different directions there because... um, Oh, look at him deflecting. Look at him. No, because the level of nudity, like as, as far as, I don't know where this was released, but as far as mainstream films yes it's quite a lot of nudity male and female obviously more female than male because for some reason emily browning just likes to be naked but you know it's full frontal nudity from the men and the women which isn't you don't really come across that often in cinema that's but true for i'd say 90 98 of the nudity is emily though yeah 98 is emily and yep. it's in quite a substantial chunk of the film so as, as far as frequency and the level of nudity, yes, it's a high level of nudity. But the nudity itself is not often 
exploited. It's it's not in a gratuitous sense. It's not over the top. It's not overly sexualized. It's not weaponized or anything like that. So I don't know. I think it's it just seems I, I don't know if it's the pacing or the direction, but it seems too clinical a context for it to be gratuitous. And see, this... I, I think I think we're getting caught on semantics here. So let's have a look. I'm going to go into my synonyms. And here we go. So for gratuitous, so I know you're thinking about other films, right? And I get it. So she's not shown sometimes in a sexual manner because she could just be, you know, that's that scene where she's just lying in bed and she gets up to put some underwear on and she goes back to bed. Like whatever, what was the point of that scene? Who knows? However, there's here's some other ways to describe gratuitous. Unnecessary, unjustified, unwarranted, cost-free, <laughs> and, and many others. But like, I'd say it is unjustified. And well, yeah. I'll use the word unnecessary. There's so many times where it just, I, I don't know. I just pictured Julia Lee in the back. She just had this uh, big old uh, wine glass swirling it in the corner being like, ah, yes. What's the magic ingredient for this scene? Nudity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing it's- Dalton in my head for some reason. <laughs> In my head, you just became friendly Geordies, but <laughs> mm. I could just I could just picture in the background and be like, you want to be a star, don't you? Yes. So I, I can just imagine there's like staff is there saying, Julia, seriously, like she's buying a coffee in the main street in Sydney. She can't be naked for this scene too. Oh, okay, we'll make it put her clothes on then. Ah, you know. <laughs> no, I, I yeah, like I said. You and I, we both love the female form. We love it. It's great. Fantastic. However, I just, I I think it was gratuitous. And it seems very weird. It seems very weird for me to say, because I'm like, man, I could look at her all day. But the thing is, in the context of this film, I just think it just seemed like, hey, we don't really know what to do with the scene. The scene's boring. So let's dress it down by getting her undressed or at least half naked. Mm. And it just, it doesn't add anything. All the scenes, wherever she gets nude, like at home, it's like, yeah, you could argue like it's a naturalistic look. And yeah, you know, you're right. I don't know, your your original sort of perspective on gratuitous was like, you know, it's not sexualized and or weaponized in that sense. Yeah, Um, I was more more caught up on the the term level because i think there's there's way too much nudity for it to be justified but you know it's i don't think the nudity the intention of the nudity is excessive mm. i don't know i i think it's gratuitous mm. um, yeah yeah and yeah i don't know i thought it was just i don't know there's nothing really else to say about it but i just thought it was it doesn't add yeah. value to the film as simple as that mm. No, not really. Like, and you know, she, I, I guarantee you, she would probably argue the director that, oh, you know, but I show it that many times. So, you know, she's less objectified and you see her as a person. But I'm like, yeah, but you've written her as such a flat two dimensional character. So mm. even if you like, you put all that bullshit aside about not objectifying her, fine, cool, whatever. But you still haven't written out a fully fleshed out character. Yeah, the, the character the character doesn't have an arc so it's just weird it's it's funny how this film is like positioned to be you know you've got a female writer and director the two main leads are female the producer's female all this stuff it's all great looks good on the paper and it's like you know this is the the, the feminist film of the decade but like you've written such a poor female character like i said the self-destructive tendencies is very unique oh, i like that idea does where does it go beyond the first couple of scenes nowhere nothing's developed nothing's explained or explored or mm. no any no no further depth is added to a character which is real disappointing because 
Well, the, yeah. the only thing, the only, you know, subplot that was had any risk of adding any depth to Lucy was Old Mate Birdman, and that's left painfully unexplained, you know, like. Oh, all the relationships. Did I say that to you as well, like in a few potties earlier, how it's a real big thing in the Australian film and television industry where they keep relationships. Yeah, Little Fish, that's right. With Hugo Weaving and bloody Kate Blanchett's character where they keep it painfully, painfully vague until the very last moment. And like I said, and I justified it back then, it's good for the first 10, 15, 20 minutes of a film or a TV show to add a bit of mystery. Like, oh, are they related? Were they were they in a relationship? Or do they know each other from work? And like, it keeps that bit of um, mystery about it, which is good. However, it gets to a point where it's, it's like, man, I've been watching this for an hour and I still don't know who the fuck each other means to each other. And it just mm. becomes, you become, you get to the point where you get fed up and you're disinterested, just like Lucy. You're like, why am I even watching this film? I'm not getting anything out of it. It's not even so much you making me work so hard to like understand these relationships. I can't even work hard to understand them because you're not giving me any clues or yeah. hints. Yeah. So That's, whatever. That is in a nutshell how I left this film. I, I was, like I said, I went in completely blind. I didn't know what to expect and thank fuck I didn't expect anything because I wouldn't have gotten it. I left the film thinking it's it's not like one of those films that I sit back and and try and digest and figure out what I've just experienced and try and put it into context or rearrange the puzzle pieces to get the picture. I'm just like, no, it's like someone's got half a dozen jigsaw puzzles and thrown out half the pieces and thrown them all on the floor and told me to make something out of it. There's no possible way you're going to get anything out of that. No matter how long I think about this film, no matter how many different things people tell me was supposedly intended by it, I'm not going to get anything out of this film. It was just nonsensical to me. Yeah. And to wrap up, I guess, that last bit of the conversation about the nudity in this film, which I think is extremely excessive, is in 1975, feminist film theorist Laura Malvey released an article titled Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. From this article, the term the male gaze was coined. Oh, we're learning things every day on this podcast. <laughs> so I'll explain it a bit more. I'm, I'm assuming you've probably heard of the male gaze anyway. Yes. So... Uh, I'll do a little ex explanation of it. Not my own. I stole it from the internet, but whatever. It sounds about right. In feminist theory, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as, sorry, as sexual objects for the pleasure of the heterosexual male viewer. In the visual and aesthetic presentations of narrative cinema, the male gaze has three defining perspectives. One, that of the man behind the camera, so camera operator, cinematographer. Two, that of the male characters within the film's cinematic representations. And three, that of the spectator gazing at the image, which is us, the audience. So I brought all that up just to make our podcast sound a bit more intellectual. Mm. <laughs> we don't have time to explore that anymore. However, there's this been growing sort of... Uh, film theory around well if there's a male gaze then by proxy does that mean there's a female gaze i did a bit of research into it and it, it seems like the female gaze they're using it more in the context of oh there's more female directors and female producers and writers and uh, female leads so the female gaze is just like a female perspective on life it's not so much about objectifying men and, you know, it's not like a, it's not just a flip of the male gaze. Well, that's how yeah. modern film theorists see it. I do see it that like there is in the male gaze perspective, 
in the flip coin, there's definitely a female gaze perspective. Like any romantic comedy, why is Matthew McConaughey's shirt off? Mm. And in like in the Twilight films, Jacob's Jacob's like just wearing shorts for the from the second movie onwards. He's just always got his rig out. So don't tell me that the female gaze doesn't exist in that context because it a hundred percent does. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree that, especially now in the last five, 10 years, that there's definitely a more, I'd call it, instead of a female gaze, I'd call it a female perspective on life and cinema and the camera. I wouldn't use the term gaze. I would call it a more of a female perspective or a feminine touch. And feminine touch doesn't have to mean like you actually are feminine in your sort of camera movements or storytelling, but just it's just a female behind the camera, a female behind the, in the director's chair and on stage and all that. So there's definitely a female gaze, but there's definitely obviously a female perspective, which mate, I encourage, like, you know, we both love cinema. So, and we want diversity in cinema, maybe not forced diversity, but diversity in storytelling. Like, mate, here we go. I know this is not an Australian film, so I'm not allowed to mention it, but in my top 10 favorite films is Lost in Translation, which is directed and written by Sophia Coppola. And I like that movie. <clears throat> I think it's fantastic. I don't like it because she's a female. I like it because it's a beautiful story. And maybe that story is told in a very unique way because she is female and we had never seen that before. That was probably one of the few mainstream Hollywood female uh, films probably released. And since then there's been heaps more, which is great. But yeah, Lost in Translation, mate. It's got that special, special magic about it. Have you seen it? No, we discussed this the other week because we oh, were going to, we, we discussed it drunk. But we were going to rent out the Darwin Cinema and watch it for my first time when I come oh, up yeah, to we the did wedding s- in a few weeks. I was just about to—I was just about to call you a misogynist, but I do remember that drunken conversation. Now, no, I do think that's pretty special. I'd love to see that on the big screen. Mm. Lost in Translation, man, that is uh, just even thinking about it. Every frame is just bang on the okay that's a good example actually so lost in translation well i don't want to give too much away i won't tell anything about story but the performances and the tension and the rise and fall in the story motion is very understated just Mm. like in this film however but the stakes still increase they don't they don't become like world ending sort of stakes they don't need to be but the stakes and the you get to learn and love the characters of scarlett johansson and bill murray they feel like real fleshed out people and the scenes you see them is like they're waking up in bed or you know having breakfast or they go to a bar and it's all very understated locations and just everyday doings but you you get to fully learn those characters so that's probably a good example you can do understated performances and you know acts one two and three and still deliver a brilliant film like she did all right we always talk about whether they're a one-shot director and box office and budget so bill was she a one-shot director or not uh without knowing the answer to this question yes absolutely she was a one-shot director that's exactly right. But uh, yes, she is a one-shot director, which for the many of the films we reviewed this year has been the ongoing pattern. So budget and box office. Do we know the stats for that? I didn't look too hard, but the only figure I came across was um, gross US box office. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, we do budget first. Yep, I so didn't come across I, the budget. I, okay, so the budget is roughly about $3 million, which I have no idea what they spent it on. Clearly not clothing. (laughs) (laughs) It 
It'd have to <laughs> That's be such a dumb joke. The most the most impressive thing, if I if I could say two positive things about this film, this is probably the only two positive things you're gonna get out of me. But <laughs> I just threw the ball into the fan by accident. Just yeah. fucking made it. Sorry, I go on. It's just crazy you get a ceiling fan on. I'm freezing my ass off down here. Um, that's that's what happens when you live near the equator. Yeah, the the positive things that I would I would point to would be a the cinematography mm. and b the set design. I think beautifully beautifully shot and beautiful locations. You know the these big grand opulent houses and manors and mansions and that kind of thing that these perverse rich people live in beautiful it was manicured it was symmetrical it was grand it was it was a spectacle but past that everything else like the pacing to some point the performances and obviously the content of the film just let it down so let's go let's go to that so i agree with you set design and um cinematography on point so what about emily browning's performance how do you rate it emily browning we know can act and we know she's also gorgeous only one of those things came through in this film. You know, she's really? Like, okay. Well, I don't think she was given much of an opportunity to act. Well, yeah, know? she didn't have much of a character to deal with, but yeah. That's what I mean. Like For the most part, she's just standing there letting things happen to her. There's not a yeah, lot guess... of... There's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of character development. And there's there's only really two out of... You know, she she's in nearly every single scene of this mm. film the the whole That's film true. is based around her and there's only two moments where she shows any emotional vulnerability one being where she is laying in bed with birdman as he's about to overdose and pass away and two when she wakes up uh with the dead old man in bed next to her so yeah both scenes are when when she shows emotion she's topless in bed with dead men more or less but yeah, that's the only two scenes where I where I felt anything, where I felt. What, what about the, no? Wait, what about the ending though? Like when she was doing that screaming, that I thought that was pretty solid acting. It was. I it didn't would. feel just. Mm. If I looked at that scene purely objectively, yes, she can get something across. Like it was a great great performance. I thought that was a great performance, but I was, I couldn't enjoy the performance for what it was because I had no idea why she was reacting the way she was, you know, like the, the film hadn't done its job in getting me to that point of appreciation or understanding. I was just like, you've, you've gone through an hour and at this point, an hour and 39 minutes of this chick being completely apathetic and disinterested and self-destructive. And then all of a sudden she's this outpour of, of outrage and emotion and, and shock horror. And I just didn't understand it. I didn't, there was a disconnect for me. I didn't see what had changed to let all that out. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, okay, yeah. So let's let's separate her shitty characterization and bad script. But the performance in that last scene, I know it's completely unjustified her reaction. However, the performance itself, I think, is really solid. I was like, oh, this is some raw stuff. Would have been great if we got some of this for the other, you know, uh, 100 minutes. But, you know, (laughs) you you take what you get. But yeah, I just thought it's a, it's a real shame because I think she is a brilliant actress. Mm. And it was funny, I watched some of the interviews with her and I really like her. I think I like her as a person. I like that she's not a Hollywood sellout. I like that she chooses scripts how she wants to. And, and you know, this is like the thing is like we we're talking about um, 
well, we're talking about a female perspective in cinema. I won't say gays. I like prefer the term female perspective, more women in directing chairs and behind the camera and writing and all that. So I guess the downside for women, especially even 10 years ago, is that like, it's pretty rare for a young woman. And this is what she says in the, um, her interviews where, you know, oh, okay, I got a script for a movie, Hollywood film. And all I am is the cutesy, uh, boring girlfriend who's on screen for 10 minutes. So, you know, when you think about this film and you're like, why would, why would Emily Browning want to do this film? But then if you think about it, how many opportunities would she have gotten to star in a feature length film as the main actress and actually have something to do? I know you'd like, you'd argue that she didn't get to do that much because the script was actually quite restrictive in what she could do. But like, if you think about it, it's like she either takes on this role or she doesn't and she just gets a part as a cutesy girlfriend for 10 minutes in some other random film. You know what I mean? So like, but even though- Sleeping Beauty was post Sucker Punch, wasn't it? No, that's this is what's interesting about it. So in that same year, Sucker Punch and Sleeping Beauty was released in the same year. And she was on the promotional circuit the same year for two wildly different films. Yeah, right. I don't know why, but in my head, Sucker Punch had come sometime before Sleeping Beauty. Well, that's what I thought too, but it came out in 2011 as well. Hmm. Two, two vastly different films. Hmm. Uh but yeah, oh yeah, because it's funny because a lot of people were talking about, we'll go back to Emily Browning as her performance. Like the last scene was the only good scene of acting because like there's, the script was just too restrictive. It was just her looking pensive and her character, like I said, there's this big thing in the Australian film industry, which we won't really touch on today, called the passive protagonist is where the protagonist of your film is just so painfully passive that the rest of the world happens around them and they just reluctantly go on said semi-adventure. But like her character is so like, there's just this level of inertia that like you need a million years of erosion to get that stone to move. Well, the gist that I got from her character throughout this whole thing was she was just, you know, a piece of flotsam floating around in the ocean. She, she goes wherever the, the tide takes her, you know, like it's like she had all the, the ingredients, you know, she seemed headstrong and sure of herself and she she seemed like she was capable of agency, but she just didn't enact it anywhere. She just let whatever happened to her happen, just floating around on the breeze, you know? It was sort of weird because I guess her purpose, before she became a sleeping beauty, her personal life, she was very, in a, in a way, like obviously apathetic and a bit of, um, what's the word, uh, nihilistic tendencies but in, in a nutshell she really was submissive so obviously in the sleeping beauty chambers she was completely and absolutely submissive because she was drugged but in her personal life she was submissive anyway to the whims of strangers at uni to anyone really she was poked and prodded she had all those medical experiments on her where she was just very very strong sexual undertones of her just gagging on this plastic cord for unknown reasons <laughs> she was submissive in her personal life and then in her work she became completely and utterly submissive so i don't know i i just yeah just a small tidbit the first middle-aged man that she lets have his way with her uh mm. based on a series of coin flips did you recognize him he actually oh wait hold on a second Wait, are you confusing? There's two scenes. Oh, wait, Hansi, are you talking about the very first scene with the Asian lady and the two blokes in the mm -hmm. suits? Yeah. No, I didn't recognise him, but I recognised when she went to the bar a second time and it was just her and this other bloke. 
and he was just talking about there was actually a pretty smart line in there where he's like you know how some people fake their own deaths i'm faking my own life yeah i I actually thought that was a pretty good line of dialogue good line of dialogue i would not lead as a pickup line but hey it worked for him (laughs) it definitely did i I recognized him but i don't know from where but sorry let's go back to that scene you're actually talking about so yeah back to the first one where you know two guys she sits down at a table two guys said oh we're actually just discussing which one of us is gonna fuck you and she said well you know who is it so they decide to flip a coin old mate wins the the coin flip she says oh i didn't say when is it going to be this year is it going to be next year is it going to yeah, be yeah 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 we, we don't we know the scene yeah where it's gone anyway the guy that wins the flip <laughs> and ends up taking her to bed is in little fish his name is mick he's a drug dealer he's an ex-copper he's running a second drug operation under sam neil's nose wait wasn't his name steve wasn't he Steve? Steve not that's Mick? it. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember Sorry. him being a Steve drug dealer too. Steve drug oh. dealer. But Mick Dorman was also in it. Michael Dorman. You mean Michael Dorman? Yes, he was, and he got a root out of it as well. Yeah. Good. Aim. Actually, the funny, the funniest line in the movie was like, "Cause Penny and I have blockout curtains. Like we spent a lot of money on these blockout curtains." And uh, I just love the scene where, because obviously we just had the bucks and I woke up in the morning, it was like 6 or 7 a.m. And the room was just full of sunshine. And I was like, fuck off. And there's that scene where Michael Dorman's lying on the bed naked and he's like, you really need to get some blinds. Like, yeah. fuck it, like fucking hell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I could really just empathize with the bloke. I just thought that was the best one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. Well, like I said, Michael Dorman, all roads lead to West, as we say yeah. on the podcast. But like well, I said, like... If anything else, it, it's, yeah. it's also shown how insular the Australian film industry is. Because we can, every single film that we've reviewed so far, we can tie it in with another one, either based on who's directed it, who's been in it, who rubs shoulders with who in what films. Um, <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of common ground. But don't you think that's weird, though? So... I know it's going to say Michael Dorman's like a big name actor, but for someone who's had like fairly big supporting roles and stuff, like I guess it was, it would have been like a paycheck, but you know, would he, like, it's such a minor role. Like I said, at the end of the day, they're, they're working like that. It's their job. But like, why would you get such a minor role? He's in the film for like five minutes. Surely they could have given it to some more, like, like you said, up and coming actor, as opposed to their circle jerk group of friends. Hmm. But like, I guess it's, you're so desperate in this industry that, and there's not that many productions happening that you'll just take, you'll just take anything. You would imagine that the acting schools like NIDA and, and whatever else have, it's always a competitive intake. They're pumping out new actors and actresses all the time. But what happens to all these people? You know, like they they go and get real jobs after a while. <laughs> yeah. There's there's no way there'd be some stat where like even for like us at Flinders Uni, it's like X amount of hundreds, if not maybe thousands, of lawyers and teachers get pumped out of Flinders Uni every year. And guess what? Most of them actually don't find work in the field they train for and they end up in some other random profession. Mm. It'd be the same thing too for actors because like, I'm not going to guess, but like with NIDA, that'd be X amount of actors they would produce each year. And it'd be interesting like a year later, two years, five years later, how many of them are actually working full-time as an actor? I'd have to say it'd be a pretty low number. Yeah. 
because like because life is competitive and all jobs are competitive and it's not just like the acting industry heaps of industries are fucking competitive so why would acting be any different yeah but i'm thinking you know like you said about the the small role that michael dorman was in is it a case of um better the devil you know or is it just laziness or you know why aren't these small roles getting you know you're in sydney for fuck's sake um (laughs) why don't you do it you look at snowtown they picked up people out of the elizabeth shopping center and that was better than this film but yeah i know they they actually did better acting jobs than the professionals yeah um granted they were just playing themselves but whatever but no you know it's interesting i guess if we ever have michael dorman on the podcast we'll ask him be like why were you in sleeping beauty how did that come about (laughs) um well it, it could be one of those things where like we won't use julia as the example but the director would be like oh for this role that's on screen for three minutes it's a very important role and i want a very seasoned actor for it you know it might be like the vanity of the project Brian brown like, won't return my calls but yeah but michael dorman will <laughs> uh it, it might be one of those things where it's like hey i want you know i don't want to deal with amateurs because like you know my project's so important and you know it's it's true art and i don't want any amateurs on this project it, it, it could be that, that i'm just assuming it. I could be assuming where they just wanted seasoned actors and that's why anyway to go on the other actors we're talking about I'll make Dorman too long so you probably don't recognize it but the so-called sister which I definitely don't think was a sister was Sarah Snook who at the time wasn't very famous but now she's a relatively known Australian actress who is phenomenal you know how I was banging on last week well not last week last potty about Essie Davis not getting the respect that she deserves. Mm-hmm. Sarah Snook, Sarah Snook is in the same category. If you ever see Predestination, which is an Australian film with Ethan Hawke, fucking hell, her performance is legendary. I was like blown away by it. I was like, mate, what? Give Oscars to genre films. Stop this bullshit Hollywood with your drama crap. Uh, what was the name of that film? Predestination. You'll like it, mate. That is a that's a solid sci-fi film. Hmm. and the sci-fi it's weird it's it's not sci-fi heavy it's light sci-fi but mate it is so good and she steals every single scene and her and she, i tell you what's good about that movie she actually has a character arc hey, <laughs> we actually, yeah. yeah we actually learn more about her and we empathize with her and mate there's some heartbreaking stuff that happens to her in that and you just oh phenomenal anyway and also you've got a Ewan Leslie, who was Birdman. You might not recognize him, but this was this was him before the beard. So he became quite famous because he starred in The Daughter with Sam Neill and Jeffrey Rush. And he was in season two of The Top of the Lake and quite a few other things, but he has his big bushy bush ranger beard and makes him look like 10 years older and makes him look very masculine. Mm. And in this film, he was quite very feminine and dorky and whatever, but like he's a, a relatively big actor now. I'm going to name two more actors. Well, I don't know the actual name of this actor, but you know how Lucy was at the funeral and she was talking to her ex? Mm-hmm. So that actor is in the movie Noise. But don't look him up, though, because he's a part of, like, a twist in Noise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do recognise him from something. Oh, we haven't seen Noise. So no, I haven't. That. Yeah. And the only other thing is, so the the men that visit Lucy in the bedchambers, uh, they, they don't have any names. In the credits, they're just Man 1, Man 2, Man 3. So Man 3, who was the dude that decided for pff, fucking unknown reasons to do WWE on Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll talk about like what the go was with that was, but do you know which actor that was? The big strong bloke. I know the one you're talking about, but I don't recognize him from anything, no. Let's just say, uh, how do I want to describe him? The Immortal Joe. 
Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's the Immortan Joe. And also his toe cutter in the first Mad Max. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. Well, he played both villains in the first movie and the fourth one. He yeah. sadly um, passed away in the last few years. But yeah, I was like, what? Toe cutter? <laughs> and I was like, the Immortan Joe. I was like, that's awesome. Anyway, I, I didn't think you would pick that up because I didn't pick that up in the first time I watched it. Well, he does wear a mask for most of Well, for Fury Road, Fury Road yeah. yeah. But um, what I was going to say is, what, like, to be honest, what the fuck, what the actual fuck was happening in that scene with him ragdolling Lucy? Like, well, what's, what's, this, what's the subtext, Julia? What's going on there? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just dumb. The scene's just dumb. I, I thought, like, my mental process as that particular one was unfolding. You know, because you got the first guy who who seems like very voyeuristic but almost loving, curls up next to her. And also and he's the he's he's the cultured man. Oh yes, the, the cultured he's, he's man. The, he's the cultured man, but he's got the same tendencies as other men. Mm. The primal urge to mate. <laughs> I, I don't know, when he told the monologue about having uh, every every bone in his in his body broken. I just figured that he can't get a hard on anymore. I thought he was like, that's the one bone that's broken. Yeah. Full impotence. Actually. Well, all my bones are fine, but the one bone that counts that's broken anyway. Yeah. Yep. And the se- second man you've obviously got, he's a cruel man. He goes, yeah, yeah. he goes straight to, you know, sexual violence and domination. But then the third man, I thought he was going to go. For, <laughs> you can probably cut this one out. I thought he was going to go for a Brian Brown cradle like a baby vibe, you know. But he picks her up and then he cradles her almost like a child for a second. And then I thought he was having a fucking heart attack. <laughs> he starts like breathing heavily and, <gasps> and then like drops her Just... half on the bed and half on the floor, like nearly breaks her fucking back. And then how did they how did they, how did they do that scene? Because man, I'm like, did she just land on her neck? Actually, that's probably the best the best acting that Emily Browning did to like not break character in that moment where she gets half dropped on a fucking bed. That's mint. That's good. That's good shit. Jumps yeah, on the floor with her and tries to lift her up and does a really shit job at it. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is this guy doing? Did they <laughs> this make it like into the movie accidentally? Is this from the blooper reel? I don't know. Actually, that's probably a good point. Is this from the blooper reel? Because it seems like, hey, I'm I'm this great Australian novelist and I've written this very complex scene. Man number three, who has no name, enters a room with a sleeping beauty. And that's all I've got. Let's just witness me. It's like, let's just do a bit of improv. And so, oh, mate, Hugh Keys Burn just picks her up and starts doing some weird. I don't know, ballet with this corpse. It just, then he's like, oh shit, there goes my heart. And just flings, tries to fling her on the bed. <laughs> oh shit. And by the way, uh, seven listeners, I've had like, I've been sick these last few days. That's why I sound nasally and I sound sick as fuck because I have been. Bill, not but, as nasal as Bill. <laughs> that's true. But I'm, I'm coming good. But yeah, that whole scene with man number three, also known as Toe Cutter. Like, what? Like, does that one scene, I, I reckon let's, I reckon we're going to tidy up. This would, this would be pretty much the end of the podcast for this uh for this episode is like that one scene, I think encapsulates this entire film. Is that scene shot well? Yeah. Aesthetically, it looks beautiful. Got Emily Browning. She's a beautiful actress. The color grade's nice. The palette's nice. Everything looks good. But like, 
what is actually fucking going on here? It doesn't make any sense. There's no character development. There's no character progression. And it's funny. It's like, oh, hey, I won't say she's coming from a feminist perspective. You just have to assume that. But like, hey, you know, I wanted to write a strong female lead. But what does she do? She's completely and utterly submissive for the entire film. The first half of the film, she's conscious. And the second half of the film, she's unconscious. And I'm like, okay, so you've written this character, but you've given your actress literally nothing to do. And then this bloke here, Tokut, is just doing a bit of improv. It's just like, ah. <laughs> just just throwing her around for just no reason. At least do some like a choke slam or WWE stuff. But no, we don't even get that. It's just that scene, I think, perfectly encapsulates the emptiness, the blandness, the painfully vagueness uh, of this film. It's just that, that, I guess that scene just summarizes the whole thing. All right, that's yeah. it. Podcast done. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, fuck. I'll, I'll say just two quick things just to tidy it all up. Okay, so there's a quick scene. So this is the uh, postscript. We've got five minutes of postscript. Quick, quick, quick. Okay, so the, what, the woman on the train, Lucy goes to that random woman on the train who's like asleep and drooling. Two things. I read a review where someone's like, oh, that's when she realizes like, what are people doing to my body while I'm in the bedchambers? And I'm like, I did not get that at all. I call bullshit. I actually thought that was Lucy's mum. Agree? Disagree? I didn't get that, but I can see that now that you've said it. I, I honestly, by this point, I had, by this point of the film, I had zero, given, zero, zero fucks to give. Not, not zero fucks to give, but at, this, at that point in the film, I'd given up trying to understand anything because I knew there was no payoff. You know, like yeah. she's just going around just doing random shit that means nothing in the, the arc of the film because there is no arc. But then I, I did see that she was credited as hairdresser on the train. So I think it was might have been actually the chick that, waxed her at the start of the film oh maybe who knows i i i i, I wanted to say it was her mum because she she just had a flipping comment being like my mum's an alcoholic so i'm like got drunk on a train and she's like she's so detached from her mum that she just sort of wiped her drool i don't know if that's what she did i think she touched the drool but whatever mm. i'll say i'll say that's the mum even though mate you could interpret that anyway because like i said the script is so painfully vague you can make yeah, it well, i made the claim that someone else was their sister so you can have her mum yeah, yeah, that, that's an outlandish claim, yours. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so the second quick postscript comment, Birdman, drug addict or just suicidal? I didn't get what was going on there. I think he was an alcoholic. Obviously, he was having, you know, vodka in his cereal instead of milk, but they talked about him going into rehab. So I think his alcoholism was, was debilitating, but in the end, he overdosed on some kind of pills, prescription tablets. And like I said, another relationship that you could have beautifully explored. No, let's keep it vague. You know, I want to be all pretend. It's funny. I never throw throw around the term pretentious, but this film encapsulates that perfectly. Mm. Just because it is so painfully vague, she was too afraid to have her voice heard and to make any definitive perspective on anything. Yeah, it's so pain painfully neutral. It's just like, oh, fuck, and kill that's, me. I really reckon there is no deeper meaning. There's yeah. no subtext. And that's, that's the thing. It, it's like, just, and that's, it just is what it's... She just wanted to make a movie where beautiful women got naked. That's what, I, that's what I really genuinely believe. That's the yeah, pinnacle of being pretentious is that whole... And, you know, I'm not making the claim that she said this verbatim, but it's the whole thing, well, 
if you don't understand, I'm not going to tell you it's too highbrow for you. You know, like just uh, this whole BYO meaning bullshit is, is a copy out. Yeah. And like I said, I wouldn't be that phased if she made some outlandish claim. Well, that too, but also like she chucked in her two cents every now and again. If she gave us a bit more with Birdman, why is he called Birdman? That just seems like one day she's like, huh, that's a cutesy name and just wrote it down. Like, it just seems like it was just like a random afterthought. There's just this, yeah, whatever. We're not, I I can't spend any more time on this project. I mean, a project episode. Uh, Okay, we've got three more things to go through. Jane Campion presents. Jane Campion, what did she do with this project? I don't know. If we ever get on the podcast, we'll ask her. But I don't want to go too deep in it because, like, we will review some of Jane Campion's films, which, guess what? They're actually really good. She's a very accomplished filmmaker. And also, we, I, well, the main thing you and I are looking forward to is really Top of the Lake. I just love Top of the Lake. I know that she was a co-creator with that, but, like, it's still her handprint. If you've ever seen any of her filmography, it's it's her project, mate. That's all I can say. Oh, God, I love Top of the Lake. Fuck, that's a good show. We've got to stop reviewing shit. <laughs> we got to stop reviewing I love shit. Top of the Lake. I love Top of the Lake almost as much as Jane Campion loves Holly Hunter, which is a fucking lot. For some reason, when you said Holly Hunter, I just thought of Meg Ryan because Meg Ryan was in the cut. I remember in year 12, for whatever reason, in English studies, I had to, we had to review her film, The Piano. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave Jane Campion like all her praise. And I think that was, she didn't win the Oscar for it, I don't think, but she won, but she was nominated as Best Director which back in the day, they was like, mate, if you were nominated, you were actually good. Like now they just give it to anyone. But mate, for her to get that best director norm is like truly, truly an amazing accomplishment that could never be taken away from her. But yeah, that's great. And it's funny. I was like, looking back now, the piano is pretty, in a, I guess I was in year 12, whatever, I was 17. But the piano is a pretty full on film, really. Uh, yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Well, we'll review it. Like I said, for this podcast, every now and again, we'll commandeer New Zealand-made films because they can be a part of our United States of Australia. New Zealand can become a state of Australia, so we will commandeer some aspects of their filmography. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely cherry-pick New Zealand cinema. We've got two fun facts, and then we're done. So the first, actually, no, I'll do this one. You'll like this one. Before filming... Emily Browning was urged by director Julia Lee to watch Lars von Trier's Antichrist and study Charlotte Gainsbourg's performance. Yeah, right. I could, I could see that. I could definitely see it. Yeah. Because don't forget, she Charlotte Gainsbourg's character is like, well, she at least shows emotions, but she's completely devastated in that film. Like she is so mm. beyond, I don't know, like the higher echelons of, depressed and self-loathing and self-hating and i guess if you compare like emily browning's more very reserved in that like she's not as demented i guess as charlotte's character yeah i think i think there's definitely a, a disconnect between the demented nature of charlotte gainsbourg's character and the detached nature of emily browning's but... oh look at you you're gonna be a film critic in no time look at that <laughs> i like that that's good i like that that's good analysis but whatever, we won't go too deep in it. And the final final thing before we wrap this bad boy up, fun fact. Apparently, for Twilight, I don't know if you read this, and I think I spoiled it the other day, Stephanie Myers, who wrote the Twilight series, actually had Emily Browning as first pick for Bella Swan. Ah. Imagine their career trajectory if Emily Browning took on 
I think the first movie came out in 2008. Her her career, like her whole everything would have changed fundamentally. Let me put it this way. I doubt she would have started Sleeping Beauty if she, yeah. if she got into the Twilight series. Kristen Stewart, her career was changed hugely mm. before she was just, oh, yeah, she was that cute girl that popped up in Into the Wild, but all of a sudden she was a leading lady. Was she? Yeah. I don't remember her in Into the Wild. I just remember as that uh, awkward-looking teenager in Panic Room with Jodie Foster. Oh, wasn't she in Spy Kids or something like that? I don't know. No, uh, I forgot she was a child actor. Yeah, no, she's she was. Oh, actually, no, she might have been in a few Nickelodeon stuff. I don't know, yeah. but she was definitely in Panic Room, which is a good film. I still love it. It's mm. basic setup, but it's it's you know that movie's got tension. <laughs> you know, basics like tension. It was great. Yeah, plot, character progression, entertaining. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, to be honest, like the way Emily Browning looks is that sort of beautiful porcelain look. I could definitely see her. She, to be honest, like I would have preferred her over. Is it Kristen or Kirsten Stewart? I don't know. Kristen. One of those two. Um, I could I could easily see her as Bella Swan, and I think she would. Yeah, it'd be yeah. I could definitely see her as that. But I think they tried. Stephanie Myers wrote this other book called The Host, and I think right at the end it was trying to be like the next Twilight, which it never did. It made the one film and went bust. But at the end of The Host, Emily Browning actually does show up, so she does star in a Stephanie Myers film. But like very briefly, as I don't know, I think it's about aliens. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm getting screwed with that to the back of her resume. Yeah, the the host. Yeah, she doesn't tell anyone about that movie. Thank you, Bill, for joining me once again. We're halfway through the year. We're half. We're that's episode six wrapped up, my friend. Yeah. Wow. So as we say here in bullshit bronchitis, we watch the Aussie films, so you don't have to. And fuck Richard Wilkins. <laughs>